Hey guys, thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Naturalist Capitalist. It has been a long time since I put out an episode. It's been over a month, like six or seven weeks, something like that. Um, been crazy busy with work, with life in general, uh, harassing politicians here in New Hampshire. Um, but finally got around to recording an episode. I actually recorded this last week and I meant to put it out almost a week ago and then just didn't have time. And then Monday and Tuesday night, I was at Nikki Haley rallies and then Wednesday and Thursday night, I literally fell asleep in the living room both nights. And then Friday night, I actually went grocery shopping and pulled into the grocery store and fell asleep in the parking lot for over an hour. Um, and then yesterday I was doing stuff with my brother. So finally I have time to get this one out today. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, it's a great conversation and I hope to have more consistent content in the coming weeks and months. So enjoy the show and uh, check out the links in the description to follow me and my guest and anything we talk about. Hey guys, thanks for watching. Today I have a returning guest. He was on my show last March when he was up in Ottawa during the Canadian trucker protest. He's a truck driving extraordinaire. He's a writer. Uh, interesting guy to talk to. Gord McGill. How you doing, man? I'm fantastic, Mr. Coverdale. Thank you very much for having me back on. What's happening in New Hampshire this morning? Uh, not much this morning, which is uh, rare compared to the last month or so. It's been, I was going uh, to say, <laughs> I've been monitoring your, your online postings in between interrogating Auntie Marianne and um, returning electricity to the citizens of New Hampshire. You've been a busy boy. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been very busy. It's a good year to get back into the power line industry. That's for sure. I got, let's see, I started back in the end of November and we've had, I think, the most storm trouble I've ever had doing this line of work. So good, good time to get back into it. But uh, I wanted to start by talking about what what happened after i talked to you last time you and i have stayed in touch through text over the last year but um when i talked to you last the protest in ottawa was in full swing um and you guys were getting support from a lot of the local people and it looked like uh you know capitulations might happen but it seems like from my perspective it ended up being a long drawn out bs political uh bullshit that just followed uh the protests and um it seems like a lot of people got in trouble and things didn't really change that quickly but eventually things kind of fell apart and most of that most of those mandates are gone now and have been reduced back to the way they were before but what 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 happened from your perspective uh since we last talked what what followed that up well, the reason it dragged on so long is we're dealing with the Teflon zombie, Justin Trudeau, who seems to walk right through every single scandal he's ever involved in, and uh, the zombies who support him, the various you know statists and Liberal Party supporters and the apparatus of the establishment in Canada. But yeah, since last February, uh, your listeners are probably familiar, uh, Trudeau and his government invoked the Emergencies Act which was this uh, very powerful nuclear option legislation. You saw bank account freezers, freezing asset seizures. Um, the, the police cleared out the remnants of the protest in Ottawa. And, and since then, there's been a number of 
Um, well, there's a, primarily a, one inquest called the Public Order Emergency Commission, which wrapped up in like November. And then the ruling, which came from that uh, in February, and that was like a, a, a mandated inquiry into the circumstances around the invoking of the act, which are part of the act. And, you know, in all of the political fallout that kind of came along with that. And, and what we saw is that basically the Freedom Convoy was more or less exonerated. All the charges against us in the media and the government were proven to be lies. And, you know, the, the government was proven to have been the authoritarian tyrants that they are with all their overreaching. However, being that we live in Canada and we have a uniparty media system and a more or less uniparty government where the various political parties pretend to fight each other, um, there will be no accountability for what went on with the Freedom Convoy, and there will be no accountability for what went on with uh, Trudeau's apartheid society he created, which the Freedom Convoy was protesting against. So it's all very sad. I mean, it, it was good to see the receipts come out at the Public Order Emergency Commission. I mean, if you watch the media, they continued to lie about it. And the and the justice who presided over the Public Order Emergency Commission was a Liberal Party appointee, a friend of Trudeau. It's all very incestuous. And so, of course, he said that Trudeau was within his, you know, it was, it was appropriate to use this nuclear option, even though the head of the Ontario Provincial Police Intelligence Service said there was no evidence of violence. All the claims by the media and the government about the Freedom Convoy with regards to violence, guns, all of that stuff, all of it was proven false. But, you know, this is this is life uh, under, under the state. You know, the state's going to do what the state's going to do, and we have to suck eggs. And that's basically the conclusion of it all. So down here in the States, a lot of people have certainly given up the hysteria about covid but they're acting like um either they never gave into the frenzy in the first place or that everyone should forgive them and just move on and forget about it what's that what, what's the comparison in canada are people still freaked out about covid up there or are they finally moving beyond it and kind of doing the same thing or what what's the temperature like around that as far as I know, and I haven't been home in a couple of months, I went to visit my sister a little while ago, but my, my gauge of it is that most people have moved on, but just like the United States, you know, there's going, there's going to be the game of retcon where people who bought into the moral panic and took part in the skate scapegoating and outgrouping of their fellow citizens are going to pretend that it didn't happen or we should let bygones be bygones. So I think you're going to see the same thing up North. Maybe, maybe to a little bit of a lesser extent because, you know, there's a few more sheeple in Canada. Um, you know, pe people are more people are more accommodating to government overreach, uh, a little bit, you know, a little, a little less inclined to liberty than the average American, unfortunately. It's funny uh, you say that because, you know, I, I remember watching the Canadian protesters last year and thinking like, wow, I mean, this is over, not, not that it was over nothing, but it was over like, um, you know, a border crossing, uh, a border crossing vaccine requirement that was put in place. And then it ended up being about all the mandates in general, too. But the Canadians were like really, really taking a stand on that. And I was like, man, what has happened to America? Like, I mean, we didn't have the same type of mandates nationwide that you guys did. But I was just thinking about all the things that have happened throughout the past. 
like the initial lockdowns in 2020, the Patriot Act, like all the wars we've been into. And I was like, man, what what's like happened to America where the Canadians are like looking way more bold than us. And now in France, you have a bunch of protests going on about raising the legal retirement age and you see them like burning government buildings and stuff. And it, it just makes me wonder, like, I don't know. I mean, is that caricature of Americans really accurate? Are we still the ones who like really care about liberty the most? I don't know. It's just kind of, well, you know, people have been satiated, you know, and I'm not the first one to point this out, but we all have it too good. And when you have it too good, you forget what causes things to be bad. And when those, um, when those phenomenon come forward, which will make things bad while you have it good, you, you don't notice, or you think it's not a big deal. You know, it's that sort of creeping totalitarianism, like what happened in Canada, you know, you know, the, the truckers, the freedom convoy was a very small protest that became very big. Like it spread like wildfire on social media and it had a lot of support, but I, I like to compare uh, what we've witnessed here to, um, you know, I, you know, people are probably going to rag on me for this, but the French resistance under Nazi occupation, the French resistance was actually a very, very small number of people, like either in the very low five digits or in the four digits, like it wasn't that many people at all. They were doing all the heavy lifting. And then after the war was over, almost everybody was in the French resistance. It was amazing. They managed to keep growing their numbers and becoming a much larger organization after France was liberated. And, you know, I, I think you're going to see that with the Freedom Convoy or, say, People's Convoy here in the United States or just the aftermath of the COVID regime in general, where, you know, the people who either said nothing, lied down and took it, or who were actively participating in the rollover of society or are all of a sudden going to do a 180 flip and hope you don't notice. Yeah. So, I mean, what do you think is America's most famous protest in the last several years? I feel like it's uh, January 6th, <laughs> which is like a, a pretty big flop compared to the trucker convoy. Well, the, well, the January 6th thing is probably a flop because it was basically infiltrated by the feds. Yeah. <laughs> and, yep. you know, I, I, I it seems to me like it was at least somewhat stage managed and dealt with very quickly i mean although you know the, the as always these these protests aren't always necessarily about the advertised issue there's usually a whole host of other things behind it right and so you know J january 6 may have been on the surface about you know uh perceived issues with the election and people thinking trump got screwed but like again that's just the tip of the tip of the iceberg because there's so much other stuff going on in society and different problems and issues that, you know, are, are the government's just not interested in resolving whatsoever, you know, and it, and it carries on now, you know, so I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm as far as uh, any other protest I've seen, you know, um, yeah, J January 6th, probably the only one that sticks out of mind at the moment. <laughs> So let's let's talk about you a little bit. Um, when I had you on last time, we didn't really dive into all the different trucking expeditions you've been on. And I want to hear a little bit about that. So how did you get into truck driving? What was your first job and how did it expand from there? Just give us kind of the give, give us the Gord McGill resume. 
Oh, wow. All right. Um, I've been in the trucking business my entire life. Uh, my dad was a trucker. Both my uncles were truckers. My grandpa was a trucker. My, my grandfather drove a Sherman across Europe uh, in a Canadian uniform to help clean out, you know, real fascists, real, re real fascism, not, not the fake one, not, not, not the fake version that exists only in people's media addled minds today. And, you know, we came home, worked in a mine for a little while, ended up going to work for this trucking company in Hamilton. And uh, the whole family's been involved ever since. Uh, my dad, my uncle drove logging trucks in Northern Ontario. My other uncle drove truck for a little while and then uh, started his own load brokerage in the 80s after deregulation when that became a thing. My dad still drives to this day. I haul logs right now uh, around upstate New York. Um, but yeah, I, after school, when I was a teenager, I, I did it the old way. I, I never went to a CDL school. I never went to truck driving school. I, I worked for a trucking company at, at night and, you know, greased trailers, helped the mechanics, uh, worked with the local guys, helping them chain and tarp loads. We did a lot of flatbed stuff and heavy equipment, uh, not unlike what you were doing in the Western United States. And I've just been in it ever since. And I, I sort of, I've always been a little bit of a wanderer. When I was a teenager, I used to get on my bike and just spend all day on it. I would ride my bike 30, 40 miles away from home and turn around and ride back. And, um, you know, I, I ended up working in Northern Canada for a while. I just did four years up on the ice, uh, did a few, wow. se did a few seasons hauling fuel in Northern Alberta, uh, went and drove truck in New Zealand. I got one of these one year working holiday visas and did a year hauling logs in New Zealand. And then um, it took me three or four tries, but eventually I got to Australia, did the same thing, drove road trains on the west coast of Australia for a while. Wow. And then, um, yeah, just I, I just figured, why should I let the oceans get in the way? You know, there's trucks in yeah. other parts of the world. Let's go. So I, I, fi I figured out how to get work visas and just made use of that. Um, you know, uh, obviously that particular lifestyle delayed a few other things, so I didn't get married and have kids till later in life. But mm -hmm. uh you know, I put, I put a few miles on in a few different places. Yeah. Having that lifestyle will delay things as I can attest to. <laughs> um, <laughs> so let's, let's talk about a few of those driving up in Northern Alberta. What, what, what was that like? What, like what type of temperatures were you dealing with and uh, what type of weather? Well, a lot of, a lot of what happens in Northern Canada is seasonal. Um, when you get so far North, uh, you know, you get into muskeg country where basically the ground is just like a mixture of like sand and bog and swamps and, you know, spruce forest all over the place. And so any of your resource extraction, a lot of that happens in the winter. When you wait for the right. ground to freeze, it makes it a whole lot easier to operate heavy equipment. You know, all your pipeline construction, a lot of your forestry, all of that stuff is fairly seasonal and the go, go time is in the winter. So I was hauling fuel in, uh, in northern alberta to like remote you know logging camps pipeline construction contractors uh up to the up to the oil sands to various various projects the company i was leased to would rent tanks like on big skids so it'd be like a 40-foot shipping container converted into a basically a truck stop and it would have a card lock on it and you know they would fuel all their equipment all their own trucks all their pickups and so I would just chase all these locations in the bush around from about uh, late October, early November till end of March, beginning of April, when it would start to thaw out. 
And uh, in Alberta, if you do not leave, if you pick up a load and deliver a load in Alberta and don't leave the province, you're not subject to uh, federal hours of service. In Alberta, I think you're allowed to work like three weeks straight without a day off if you want. So it's go time. So just work hard, uh, make bank. Um, temperatures, you know, yeah, you'll get down into the minus 30s, minus 40s. Um, you know, especially January, February, uh, early March. It's pretty cold up there. Um, you know, but it, it gets it gets that way in the states too, right? Like you'll you, you'll see temperatures like that in Montana and the Dakotas and across you know the sort of upper Midwest high plains, you know. So yeah, yeah it's and it's just it's just different. It's just a different, just a different experience, you know. Um, you do things you, you drive differently depending on the roads. Um, some of the bush roads when you get into the hills, you do a lot of chaining up. You know, not, not unlike do, going over a mountain pass, except there's no pavement under you. You're just, you're just trying to like, you know, keep from spinning around on snowpack. Um, you know, you, you have to put like a bra on the front of your truck to keep the heat in it. Um, a lot of guys put an engine tarp on, depending on how far north you are and how cold it is. So it's like a canvas tarp that'll go up around the oil pan, you hook it up inside the frame rails, keep the, keep the cold, bitter wind off the oil pan to help keep your temperature up. And you know, just just go hard all winter. So, are Canada's uh, hours of service rules the same as the United States, aside from the Alberta exception you're talking about? Larry? No, no. Okay. Um, there's 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 so there's like there's like three different sets of rules. There's Alberta, then there's the federal rules, which sort of go across the country, and then there's north of sixty rules. So uh, the sort of regular federal HOS, you're allowed to drive 13 hours a day. Um, I, I think the like there's there's some difference with the 70 hours or is it 80 hours? There's a little bit of a difference in how the like week is structured, mm-hmm. and you're allowed 13 hours of driving a day. And when you get north of 60, it's even more. It's like you're allowed to work. I think I think you're allowed to drive 15 or 16 hours or something, and then your window is 18 hours rather than 14. It's mm-hmm. uh yeah it's it's yeah north of sixty is even more generous just because of the distances involved and conditions and it's just a different world up there. I'm mm-hmm. sure I'm sure I'm sure quite a few American truckers that go back and forth to Alaska are all clued into that. Yeah, they must be. I, I'd imagine Alaska's rules are probably different too than the lower forty-eight. I'm not sure about that, but I I have no idea to be quite honest. I, I've never been to Alaska. I've been close. I've been to the Yukon, but I've never mm-hmm. been over the border. Alaska is the only state I haven't been to. Oh, it's cool, man. You got to check it out. It's a lot. I've never been there trucking, but I've been there for fun back in 2016. It was pretty cool. Yeah, I bet. Um, yeah. So, uh, what about this uh, driving in Australia, doing those uh, those road trains? What was that like? Like, what type of is it? Just one tractor hauling like eight trailers, or how, how, does, how does that work? <laughs> Um, it, d- it depends on what part of the country you're in, um, on the East coast of Australia, basically anywhere. So there's a mountain range that roughly runs all along the East coast and everyone's like hugging the coast between that mountain range and the ocean. And that's sort of where things are temperate. Um, you know, you can actually grow more food. It rains more. Um, it's not as hot as the rest of the country. And that's where everybody lives. So there's not really road trains there. Um, they run B trains like we do in Canada, but no, no road trains. But if you're going across the country, say from, 
you know, Sydney to Perth or up through the guts uh, uh, along the Stuart Highway. Um, you'll you'll have slightly different rules depending on the road. So if you're going from uh, Sydney to Perth, there's a town outside of Sydney a few hours west called Dubbo. And outside a lot of the major centers, they have these things called uh, road train assembly yards, which are sort of like um, along the New York State Thruway or the Ohio Turnpike off the exit ramps. They'll have big yards because on those roads, you're allowed 248s or 253s. Right. Well, they have these in Australia as well. So if you're going to Perth, you're like allowed two trailers from Dubbo right across. If you're going from uh, the south to the north, like up through the middle from Port Augusta North, you're allowed three trailers. Um, Outback Queensland, you're allowed three. If you're going from Perth to uh, up the west coast or up towards Darwin, you can hook on a third trailer at this place called Woobin, which is north of Perth a little ways or Carnarvon if you're on the coast. And then they have these mining trains that people assume they're six, seven, eight trailers or whatever. Um, in the northwest of the country, there's another mountain range called the Hammersley Ranges, and that's where most of Australia's iron ore is located. And some of the mines have been there since like the 1960s, and they have like established rail lines. So they just load these trains. Trains take the ore to the coast, put it on a boat, and it goes to Asian markets. Uh, some of the newer mines that they have uh, do not have rail access. So instead of using trains, they use road trains and they'll have what they call quads. So it's like four trailers and each trailer will have three or four axles. The dolly will have three or four axles and, and they're going over 200 metric tons. So basically 400 some odd thousand pounds. And it's just one tractor, usually uh, either an Australian built version of a Mac or a Kenworth, usually Kenworth. Kenworth has its own plant just outside Melbourne, and they make all their own models there that you'll never see here because an Australian built Kenworth is a totally different animal. I mean, they look a little bit the same. The hood's the same. The sort of stylings are somewhat similar, but, you know, um, the cab is lifted like 18 inches higher off the frame to allow a crosswind to get in to help cool off the rear end of the engine and the transmission. Um, the hoods are higher because the rads are taller. Uh, every, everything's built um, to accommodate the weight, the heat, the conditions, the suspensions are totally different. They're, they're, they're built to take a beating on outback roads. So like an, an Australian say, let, let's say like a T90, T904, T908, T909, something like that uh, versus a W900B here in the U.S. They'll probably weigh about another six tons. They're very heavy, um, but they're built to last. Australia, they have a they have a different approach to vehicles there, you know, and that's why, you know, Australia will have, uh, you know, your Toyota Land Cruisers and Hiluxes and the kind of the kind of trucks that only ISIS gets to have and we don't because the, EP, <laughs> cause the EPA and the DOT, say you know their emissions are too high because a lot of them uh a lot of them use naturally aspirated diesel engines i mean they'll last forever uh maybe not get you the best fuel mileage in the world but like you know they're built for war and they're built for working in tough hot conditions and pulling a lot of weight so they're heavy they last forever and we're not allowed to have them but the australians are uh, for now yeah <laughs> Yeah. I mean, do you know, was there any sort of Australian trucking protests that took place? Because I know their, their lockdown measures were even crazier than Canada's were. Um, I don't know if you heard from any old friends over there or anything. Oh yeah. No, they, um, 
Yeah, things in Australia got really uh, weird, too, and even probably even weirder and crazier than Canada. Yeah. But um, there's a uh, there's a particular cultural dynamic at play in Australia that they don't advertise. You know, they they, they sort of Australians don't talk about it and a few of them acknowledge that it exists. But it's like this it's like this dirty little secret. And if you bring it up in company. It's like considered rude or something. Um, I, 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 many people know Australia sort of started off as an English colony where they sent people who had been convicted of crimes in England. And the punishment was called transportation. So you could be sent from England to Australia for periods of 7, 14 or life. Those were the three levels. And that's it. Away you go off to Australia with you, you criminal. So the Australian society at, from its start was built between people who had been convicted of something back in England or people who were basically prison guards and administrators. So half of Australian society, roughly speaking, is descended of that mentality so like they and the rest of them have Stockholm syndrome. So they really like their nanny state. They think it's fine. Most of them, not all. I mean, there were some Australian trucker protests there and my hats are off to them, but like didn't take off like the Freedom Convoy in Canada whatsoever. But uh, they just, you know, the, 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 a libertarian like yourself would have a very hard time in Australia because they just it's, it's not in their DNA at all. And in mm -hmm. fact, they're actively hostile to American style politics in Australia. Very mm -hmm. hostile. Now they put off the airs of being, you know, easygoing, shrimp on the Barbie, mate. We're all going to drink beer, go to the pub, go to the beach, go surfing. Life's good. But underneath that veneer of being easygoing people, uh, their government are cunts. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> well said. So, um, you kind of started this out uh, describing your trucking career saying you didn't go to CDL school, which I didn't either. Uh, I got my CDL 10 years ago now. Um, and I just got it practicing at the lumber yard after hours, learning how to shift, learning how to back up. And then if there was a guy who would stick around late enough, he'd take me for a ride afterward just to get the hang of things. And then I started just driving trucks uh, there was a transfer route from one lumber yard to another. And so I'd just go with a guy riding in the passenger seat and learn how to drive that way. Went and got my class B license. And then a few months later, got my class A tractor trailer license. You did it. And you did it the that. proper way. You did it. You did it the right way. I think so. But um, I am, you know, I actually, I taught both of my brothers how to drive. Um, oh, awesome. I wasn't, I wasn't 25 early enough to ride along with them. Uh, because they're two and four years younger than me. So I was uh, 20. Let's see. When my first brother got his license, I was 20. And then when my other brother got his license, I think I was 22 or 23. Um, but I taught him how to shift, taught him how to back up, taught him how to do the pre-trip. Then they had to find someone else to ride with them. Um, but th they got it that way too, you know, just learning on the job or after hours. Now at the company I'm working at, there's – a new guy there who doesn't have his CDL and he has to go to truck driving school and he has to go, I think it's five, uh, six weeks, five hours a day, 
five days a week and it costs 10 grand for a skill that my brothers and I learned after hours on the job <laughs> how to do, you know, my, I think my brother drove a truck like five or six times down the road and then just learned yeah. his pre-trip and his skills. And then he went and, you know, took his test or whatever. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. Like to think that you have to, you kind of have to take a step back and look at all the supply line issues we already have in this country and then wonder if, you know, making it this much harder for people to become truck drivers is a smart move. And I'm going, becoming... I'm, 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 I'm going to give you, um, I'm going to give you a response to that. That's um, how, how shall we put this? It's both. It, it, it'll probably annoy you, but I'm also going to point something out here as to how we got here. So this whole having to go and do a course thing, that's mm -hmm. now been mandated. I think um, part of the, there was a sneaky little thing they did with this Biden infrastructure law, uh, bipartisan infrastructure law that got passed under Biden. So and a lot of noise has been made about this, about, you know, putting 18 year olds on the road. I mean, they were already allowed to just there's not that many of them and they weren't allowed to cross state lines. Right. Um, but what they've done now is so, you know, how we did it old school, you know, you, you, you learn on the job. You don't go very far away. You, you, you learn how to back up in a yard. Uh, unload and unload trailers and then you gradually work locally sort of an, an an informal apprenticeship program as it were well what they've done now is if you do something like that you can't just go to the dmv with a truck and say hey i'm here now i'm going to do my license test you're not allowed to do that anymore whoever brings you to the dmv with the truck has to be like accredited now so basically what they've done is they've cartelized the CDL school system, right? Which, in a way, in a way, was already cartelized, but you didn't necessarily have to go through it. And one of the things I've done in my, you know, writings and my readings on the trucking business over the years is I've come to find out that this sort of cartel system is heavily subsidized by the taxpayer, and it's a sort of a quasi corporate welfare system which has been used by uh, the mega carriers who have you know hundreds thousands of trucks in order to facilitate uh the driver churn problem where and i mean you know this truck there's some trucking companies out there that have like 100 percent turnover every year and they just chew through people well there's actually 10 million americans with cdls and only about three and a half million jobs that require them and then that three and a half million, it's roughly half local, half long distance OTR. And um, the, the industry has been perpetuating this myth for years about, oh, there's a driver shortage, there's a driver shortage. Well, they, they, they've framed it in a way to mask this corporate welfare program. So basically, they can't keep anybody around. I mean, they keep guys around like me and you that have it in our blood and like doing it, you know, and thank God for that because, you know, otherwise we wouldn't have good drivers, but mm -hmm. there's a significant majority of the truck driving population who are constantly turning over guys get in. They realize, especially in the freight market, it's a shit show. They wait around all the time to get loaded and unloaded. They don't get paid for things. They get treated like crap by their dispatchers and they quit. 
And that entire system only exists because they keep getting new people. And how do they get the new people? Well, sometimes that $10,000 to go to truck driving school is paid for by the state or it's paid for by the feds or it's paid for by localities. And uh, so, some trucking companies are brazen about it. They'll come to their local county or state and say, oh, man, I, I can't get drivers. I need 50 drivers. Can you help pay for either our in-house truck driving school or my buddy's truck driving school over here to like subsidize getting new people because a lot of people don't have that $10,000 or however much it's going to cost. So they come to uncle Sam or they come to the state for it. So it's just like, in, they, they market it as a jobs program, but nobody ever says to the trucking industry, why do you guys come in here with your handout to the taxpayer? Because you can't keep your people around. Like, in a, you know, you're a libertarian. Most of your audience are libertarians. The answer should be, no, fuck you. Fix your company. Make it so that your employees want to stick around. This isn't our problem. And sorry, you're not getting any money out of us. Mm -hmm. The problem is it's been framed as a jobs program. And there's this other myth in America about like, I want to call it a myth, but like it's it's a cultural phenomenon of like, you know, the sort of Protestant work ethic and everybody has to have a job and having a job is the, you know, the holy grail of being a citizen in America. So people are willing to overlook the fact that the entire industry has parasitized itself off the taxpayer in order to keep this flow of drivers going. And nobody ever talks about it that way, I think, except for me. <laughs> like I, I really need to write, write a book about this because everywhere I look, I see it and nobody ever, ever discusses it this way. Uh, the only other person I've seen talk about it like that is this uh, guy named Steve Vichelli. He wrote a book called uh, big Greg trucking and the decline of the American dream, which sort of analyzed the lease operator model. And he analyzed all the retention problems and he kind of touches on it in his book, but other than him, nobody looks at it that way. So, um, I actually, I first, I think, uh, Tommy Sammons was the first guy who corrected me that there isn't a huge truck driver shortage. Like two years ago, he was talking to me about that. That was the first time I heard that. And I guess a lot of people are confused when they hear that because everywhere you go, you see signs looking for class A CDL truck driver will pay, you know, this much money. And everyone's talking about how they can't find drivers you know to do the jobs what there does seem to be a shortage of is capable truck drivers you know yes. people who know how to drive yes and that's a function the the so, so like i say that it's a little bit more nuanced it's not that there's no driver shortage it's that the way it's talked about is dishonest right. and in that dishonesty you don't talk about the cause of the actual shortages, which do exist within that narrative. Right. So yes, good, capable drivers are in fact, hard to come by. Why? Because the experience takes time. Being good at something takes time. If people come into the business through the sort of corporate welfare eyes, CDL mill system, and then only stick around for six months or a year or two years and wash out and give up and go do something else. Well, those guys that quit are not sticking around to become the good capable drivers that maybe move on to hauling hazardous materials. Maybe they move on to doing heavy stuff like you do. 
you know, uh, pulling super bees in Canada, whatever, you know, the, the, those parts of the business that require people who are more capable and have a higher level of skill. Well, the, the, the pool of available people that could move up that ladder is being affected by this churn and retention problem. So yeah, there is definitely shortages within the business in certain specific areas, but those shortages are caused by the lie about the shortages over here. You see what I'm saying? Oh yeah. No, I, I was just trying to clarify what you meant because I think a lot of people are confused when they hear that. Uh, but it's definitely true. Like I have, I mean, in my time driving over the last 10 years, I've seen a lot of people who have CDLs. So they're qualified, but then they show up and they have no clue how to drive. They, you know, if it's a standard, they don't know how to shift. If it's got a trailer, they don't know how to back it up. They don't know how to do anything. And you, you wonder, you sit back and wonder like, okay, all these new requirements, you know, uh, the, because at this point, you know, a few years ago, you didn't have to go to truck driving school yet, but the test was way harder to pass. And, you know, there were more regulations on trucking and now there's a school and you see these people coming through and in your mind, they should be more and more qualified than they were in the old days when all you had to do was show up and basically drive around the block with, you know, the guy who authorized everybody in that town and then get your CDL and you're on your way. The narrative is that the more training and the more schooling and everything you have, the more qualified you're going to be. And that's just absolutely not the reality of the situation. Well, it's they're, they're, they're papering over a, a human problem, a human and an economic problem with regulation and with fake credentialing. Right. So, you know, again, because they have this CDL system all across uh, the United States and Canada, um, it's it's the the barrier to entry to that is I believe artificially low, and again also a, a downstream function of the sort of corporate welfare uh, financing of it, and how it just how it works, and what happens again as you say there's all kinds of people around with licenses, but the license doesn't mean anything anymore, you know like that's why like if someone rocked up to the company you worked at at West hauling heavy equipment and super floats and multiple axles and escorts and all that stuff like they're not just going to take oh, oh you got a cdl great they're going to dig into your background how much experience right. do you have with this stuff because they have to that's part of their business they can't just let any recently graduated cdl mill person on the road and and but what the government's doing and this is sort of part of my my project is to highlight this is they're papering over the problems being created by the what I call like the CDL mill corporate welfare complex producing all these people who really maybe not be truck drivers. They come in, they do that six weeks of training and now they're going OTR, but they don't have the necessary experience for dealing with the road. Um, this is going to sound elitist and it's not a bit of a bit snobbish, but like it's the truth. The CDL mill corporate welfare complex sucks up a whole lot of the lumpen proletariat and people who just don't, who just, they're only there because, you know, they went down to their state welfare office because they were about to get kicked off for being on it too long and decided, well, truck driving sounds easy. I'll go do that. But they're not, they're not the kind of person you want on the road. And they keep trying to regulate it because this problem gets 
it, it causes issues for the public. You get more truck accidents. You get guys speeding, uh, being inconsiderate on the road. You know, so they bring in the ELD mandate a few years ago. And they've already done all the studies since every single year. Truck accidents don't go down. You know, mm -hmm. same number of people get killed, if not more. And then they find aggressive driving has gone up. Speeding tickets have gone up. Moving violations have gone up. They're trying to paper over the fact that this corporate welfare cartelization of the CDL school system is basically screwing the trucking industry over itself with excess regulations because they don't want to fix that system. The government, the trucking companies, the, the economy as a whole does not, the, the, we've become so used to cheap freight, the Amazons of the world, all these huge companies, Procter and Gamble, like they, they're just so used to cheap freight that they cannot countenance that the cheap freight is the cause of all of these safety issues, retention issues. And, and, you know, and there's a, there's a phrase that the leftists like to use. And in this case, it's true. They're basically out, out, outsourcing all of these costs onto society and they're diffusing them across, you know, the motoring public, the insurance companies, anybody who has to deal with any of this crap, it, it, it's being like put out to them and the trucking companies and the shippers that they work for, are not having to pay any of these costs, right? And they and they're always coming to the government looking for more money to keep the system moving instead of trying to fix that system, right? It's 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 a human and an economic problem that they try and paper over with regulations, and the regulations just make it worse. Yeah. So under the guise of being um, free market capitalism, where freight prices are just naturally coming down. It's actually a giant corporatocracy that the government is subsidizing and people aren't aware of it and it's screwing over the workers. And it's also uh, covering the costs for a lot of these shipping companies and screwing over, basically screwing over the workers and the customers is what you're saying. Pretty much. And like I say, you know, if you look at studies of truck drivers wages and how they've basically not kept up with inflation and in fact have gone down since the seventies. Um, and a lot of people have, have noticed this and there's been plenty of books written about it. And lots of people like to blame, you know, the 1980 motor carrier act and deregulation, which is sort of part of it, but like they're, they haven't zoomed out enough to realize that the, the, the training and the corporate welfareization of the training program and the fact that nobody wants to fix this turnover issue is a major component of it, right? Like it's just this, it's this elephant in the room. They don't want to acknowledge that it's there. Those of us paying attention can see it. There's a huge fucking elephant, but getting rid of that elephant means the people who've benefited from this system are going to benefit less, right? And they can't have that. Right. So let's talk a little bit about autonomous trucking. Um, I think, um, I, I guess I, I take a different view than a lot of truck drivers. Like a lot of truck drivers are worried that this is actually going to replace truck drivers in a like short amount of time. And I'm just extremely skeptical for multiple reasons. I did read the literature that you sent me, the book review you wrote, and I listened to the uh, podcast you had with America, the America Without Drivers guy. Um, and I understand that there are 
bigger forces than market forces at play here just like with everything else we're talking about like there's a there's a larger agenda there it's not just about saving money and reducing accidents it's, there's a lot of other stuff going on but barring those outside forces it seems like some some level of um driverless trucking is inevitable right like it seems like i mean if, if it were up to me all trucks would still be 18 speeds and c15 c15 engines you know like i, I like that shit my but, brother my brother my brother in christ yes <laughs> like if i could but i i realize that's just not the way of the future like people are going to choose vehicles that do more for them it seems to me without any of these outside pressures to completely remove truck drivers the natural course of things would be for trucks to become more and more self-reliant but you would still want a driver in place for so many different things like for if there's really inclement weather if you have to chain the tires up uh obviously if it's a delivery job it would be really hard to get rid of the driver at all um for load securement i mean there's just like there's so much more that goes into truck driving than just pressing a gas pedal and holding a steering wheel like right and, and a lot and, of variables yeah and and the 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 manufacturers of autonomous trucks know this um if you listen to any of their uh, recent press copy most of them acknowledge that you know they're, they're not going to be doing deliveries and they've also acknowledged the limitations of the you know quote-unquote artificial intelligence systems that would drive these trucks and their inability to deal with like all of the variables of navigating urban environments, other traffic, um, their LIDAR systems they use get spooked by the weather. Like they, they're having all kinds of trouble getting these things to operate at any modicum of safety that, you know, the motoring public or the government would, you know, find acceptable. So I think what a lot of them are trying to do is focus on uh, the pin to pin, you know, so you go to a, a, a yard, outside of the city um the, the local driver uh drops the trailer uh autonomous truck bangs onto it goes on the interstate drives in a straight line the whole way to the next location mm -hmm. gets out and then it gets returned to human service and i they might get that far but that's about as far as they're going to get given um, the limitations of the technology. And then just given what you said, you know, you, you need people around to do all of these different tasks involved with trucking that, you know, it, it's not just driving, you know, and I'm really critical. Um, I, I've looked into this enough. Now uh, I wrote something in my Substack a little while ago about, um, the, the, the levels of autonomy, right? So the, the, the society of automotive engineers has got a, a classification system from like zero to five and each new level of autonomous truck introduces new uh, technology, which takes over some aspect of driving from the driver. Zero is the kind of, kind of trucks we drive. There's no assistance whatsoever. Five, it's full autonomy. The computer's doing everything. You don't need a person. Are they ever going to get to five? Don't know. Uh, uh, jury is out. The problem is um, what uh, uh, the, the, the sociologist Karen Levy, whose book I reviewed, she calls the slope, which is w w what do we do with the people involved here between the zero and the five? 
What do right. we do with, with truckers? How do we treat them? And, and again, th this ties into what I was saying about regulation. Because there's so many people on the road who shouldn't be as a function of this corporate welfare program, they're not seeing any reduction in, in safety, any increase, I should say, in safety or reduction in accidents or incidents on the road. And so they keep trying to regulate us more. Now, when you get into autonomous trucks, they have various stages of regulation on those trucks. But if you have a computer driving the truck and someone's just sitting there, like you and I both know that like if you're on some long stretch of 70 or 80 or 94 or 15 and it's just long and flat and straight, it's, it's it, can, it can be boring. Mm -hmm. Imagine how boring it's going to be when the computer is doing 80% of your job. Yeah. Right. And, you know, and they've, again, you know, there's lots of literature on this um, about reaction times and people taking over for machines when machines screw up, be they, you know, something in a factory, an airplane, a truck, you know, and, and the reaction time to take over in an emergency situation is too long, not nearly enough. So uh, my position on all of this is it's either zero or it's five. Um, the levels of uh, semi-autonomy betwixt those two positions, good luck finding drivers that are going to sit there to have to babysit a machine that's going to do their job. And, you know, yeah. and, they're, and they're finding that they're having to get, they're trying to get the minders, as I call them, you know, people like Torque and Waymo and, all these companies that are trying to build these autonomous trucks, they, they actually have to get drivers to teach the trucks how to avoid certain things and then to negotiate um, when you break the rules because the act of driving means actually breaking a lot of rules because like you get out there on the road and, you know, you get to an intersection and maybe people don't know who's first. You have you know, some situation comes up where like, you know, uh, the rules need to be broken. Um, a friend of mine, a fellow trucker, he dropped his truck off to get service at a place in Ohio. And he was driving back to where he lives in Kentucky and he rented a car. And the car had automatic lane control or lane control assistance. And he's, you know, trundling along the road, driving home. And uh, there was an, uh, an alligator in the road, you know, the remnants of a blown trailer tire. And he tried to drive around it. He tried to go on the shoulder to get around this uh, tire carcass and, and the computer fought him. It was trying to push him back in the road because the computer didn't understand yeah. that there was an obstruction. So like at, at some point here, we have this tension between the computers trying to operate the vehicle for us. And then us as the human computer actually observing and being able to make decisions faster than this technology. And we have, we're almost fighting each other. So again, like I say, I, I, I'm not, I want the slope gone. You either have full automation, full luxury space trucking, no drivers, or you just leave it to us because everything in between is garbage. Yeah. Including automatic transmissions, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, again, the automatic transmission was only developed to assist the mega carriers with their retention problem because they don't believe in humans. And I mean, mm -hmm. you know, a, a guy like Tommy or some other people in our sphere who focus on transhumanism and it's sort of like effects on various areas of life, you know, like if you drill down far into it enough, 
you know, the, the, the notion of autonomous trucks, automatic transmissions, lane control, you're getting the machines to do stuff that we do ourselves. Like that kind of overlaps with the transhumanist project because like, what do you need people for? We have machines, right? Yeah. You're you as a driver are partially being sublimated to this machine which is doing your job for you, which you're per perfectly capable of doing if you're trained correctly. But no, 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 no. The, the machine's going to do it for you, and it's somehow going to be better, which is subjective and not entirely true for not entirely enough people. And, and again, you know, w uh, libertarians listening to this, um, the, the government shouldn't be telling us what that subjectivity is. Yeah, for sure. Well, man, I'm going to have to have you on again for sure. Um, as I've been alluding to for the last few months, this is the new direction my show is going to be going in. So I'm going to be talking a lot more about this type of stuff. Um, what do you want to promote while you're on here? I know you've got a sub stack. You've got a podcast. Uh, tell everyone where they can keep up with your work and follow what you're doing. Right. Um, so thank you for that opportunity. Uh, I do a lot of writing. I mean, I wish I could do more. In fact, actually, I'm not doing a lot of writing. I write infrequently on my own Substack, which is autonomoustruckers.substack.com. Um, I have two small children and a wife, and I spend 60, 70 hours a week on the road. So the writing has not been as much as I would like it to be. Uh, I do also write for other outlets, uh, Compact Magazine, American Affairs. Uh, I've, I've done a few articles for Newsweek. You know, if you punch my name in, in the in your favorite uh, non-Google search engine, Gord McGill, M-A-G-I-L-L, -L, you'll find my stuff. Um, I started a podcast recently. Uh, it's called Voice of Gord. I'm Gord. This is my voice. Uh, it, the, the title is sort of making fun of my own voice. But um, I it, it, that show, it's ostensibly about trucking. Um, that's sort of the main thing. But like more, you know, like what the discussion we just had. I want to talk about the, uh, uh, the technology and the regulations that affect us. Life on the road, various different things. It, it's, a, it's an audio podcast only. It's meant to be listened to because that's what I do. I listen to podcasts. Um, and so, yeah, you can find that out there. Uh, all the major podcast platforms, Voice of Gord. It's also, if you subscribe to my Substack, again, autonomoustruckers.substack.com. It gets released there. If you subscribe, you'll get my uh, podcast. Uh, I do one every week. It'll show up right in your inbox. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at driver autonomy. And if you want to meet me in real life, I will be at the mid America trucking show in Louisville, Kentucky next weekend. Um, there you go. Yeah. There'll be quite a few people from trucking Twitter there. It should be a good, good party. I think there'll be some bourbons and beers and whatnot in the evenings after uh, all the fun stuff at the convention center. So if you're at, uh, if you're at Matt's, uh, find me online, send me a DM. I'll come meet you in real life and let's chat. All right. Well, sounds good, man. Thanks for coming on. We'll do it again. Um, everybody who's watching, you can check all the links in the description to follow Gord and also to follow me. If you're new to the show, subscribe to me on YouTube, Odyssey, uh, Rumble, also all audio platforms and also my Substack. All those will be linked below. Check them out. Uh, thank you everyone for checking into the show today.